Hello, brave ones. Thanks for listening to the Birth Bruja podcast. I'm your host, Eric Guajardo Johnson, and this is episode six, Loss and Grief series, part two. Last episode, we connected with therapist Shanisha Hoover and my colleague, Kat Petru, for an introductory conversation into loss and grief. We answered the questions, what are common ways folks can experience loss and grief? How can loss and grief impact lives? How are individual and collective experiences of loss interwoven? And what are common struggles in accessing resources and how can we best provide support? In this episode, we speak with birth worker Maureen Butner to witness the telling of her birth story, the actual story of her birth. Dear listeners, as with each episode in this series, please take extra care while listening. Pause when necessary, drink a glass of water, take a breath of fresh air, call a friend. This is a heartfelt tale of life, loss, and love. Stay tuned and take care. Maureen Butner, thank you so much for joining us today in the Birth Bruja podcast. Really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you so much, Ari. It's really an honor, truly. I'm very excited to be here. This topic of loss and grief is uh, a pretty deep one. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I probably said that for all episodes, and it's still true. It's very, um, it's both very alive for me and also something that's uncomfortable to sit with all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I, and knowing you in community uh, and having this previous relationship with you to see how, how graceful and full of integrity you are in your work. Um, Thank you. To know you in that way and then to invite you here for this conversation, it just, it, it means a lot to me. Aww. So thank you. Thank Aerie. you. I'd love to hug you right now in this uh. moment. It means equally as much to me. I do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So as we've done in past um, episodes for this series, want to begin today's episode with a prayer, a blessing, a sense of grounding. And today you've graciously offered to share that blessing with us. So mm. please do. Um, this is the traditional charge of the star goddess as um, written by Starhawk. Um, and to give you a little context, um, this poem, um, when I first arrived to San Francisco, was something that helped me just usher in so much deep authenticity and kind of this um, deep remembering of like who I'm really supposed to be and like why I'm supposed to be here in this world. Um, so I hope that people resonate with kind of its soul depth. <clears throat> I who am the beauty of the green earth and the white moon among the stars and the mysteries of the waters, I call upon your soul to arise and come in unto me. For I am the soul of nature that gives life to the universe. From me all things proceed, and unto me they must return. Let my worship be in the heart that rejoices, for behold, all acts of love and pleasure are my rituals. Let there be beauty and strength, power and compassion, honor and humility, mirth and reverence within you. And you who seek to know me, know that your seeking and yearning will avail you not unless you know the mystery. For if that which you seek, you find not within yourself, you will never find it without. For behold, I have been with you from the beginning, and I am that which is attained at the end of desire. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and folks, that I'll make sure to have that poem in the show notes, because there's so much to unpack and so much meaning in there. Mm -hmm. I know for sure I want to be able to sit with that again and again. So thank you, Maureen. Thank you. Launching into it, please tell us about yourself. Where do your people come from? Where are you from? What are you doing these days? Mm, all right. Well, hi, I'm Maureen. <laughs> um, I am from New Jersey originally. Um, my people are mostly German and English is my understanding. Um, and I moved to San Francisco about five years ago. Um, at the time, I was in a program for social work back on the East Coast and came to visit with a friend and fell head over heels in love with the city and mm -hmm. just felt this like inexorable pull, like you need to be out here. This is where you can heal. So I came here and um, through a series of circumstances discovered birth work, 
So I'm a volunteer birth worker now, um, and I also do childcare professionally, and uh, I also read tarot for folks. That is kind of like my deepest passion, my most favorite thing to do on the whole face of the planet. It's just to sit with people and get to help them um, come into contact with deeper versions of themselves and peel back sort of the layers of conditioning that we've all been put through and find like what really is going on, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And knowing your knowing and witnessing your passion for a tarot makes total sense seeing it simultaneously with your passion for birth work, mm. knowing that this is such a multi layered realm of individual experience and, and political mm. manifestations and, and all that. Um, and all that being said, too, uh, I feel like this is actually a beautiful segue into launching our, our storytelling today. Mm-hmm. Again, thank you for being here, especially coming to share something so so intimate and um, mm. vulnerable. Mm. Yeah, the, the story of your birth story, mm. of your mother giving birth to you. So thank you. Oh, well, it's again, it's a total honor to be here. And I really I live for moments to get vulnerable like this with other people. It's like such a nice moment of connection, because really, wouldn't the world be so different if we all let ourselves get intimate with one another without fear of judgment? You know, so thank you for creating a space that people's voices and stories can be heard within. It's like I'm raising my arms up and down right now. I'm really (laughs) excited about it. Thank you. Okay, so. I just tell my story. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I was born August 31st, 1988 at uh, 3.58 p.m. For those of you who are into astrology, I give you full permission to Google my own birth <laughs> chart. I'm sure you'll find interesting things there. Um, and I was born in Morristown, New Jersey. So that's an important piece. Um, and in order to really understand my birth story, you have to understand the story of my mom's pregnancy. So when my mom first found out that she was pregnant, this is her second pregnancy, um, my paternal grandparents were really excited, and they asked to take my parents out to dinner. And as they were leaving, um, my grandmother, Doris, who was a really special woman, um, very intuitive, really compassionate, just like when she walked into a room, the whole room would kind of light up. Um, And I think she had like a real gift in terms of... uh, her ability to understand other people. My dad's really reluctant to call it psychic, really reluctant to call it anything supernatural. Um, But I think after listening to the story, people will resonate with the fact that she had some juju of some kind. Um, So my mom, so my grandmother pulls my mom aside and says, you know, Wendy, I'm so excited that you're going to have another baby. I think you're going to have a girl. And you know what? I think it's going to be twins. One for you and one for me, right? Mm. We can tag team. My mom laughs and she's like, oh, you know, let's not wish twins on me just yet. (laughs) It's a lot of work. And wouldn't it be so fun for you to have another baby, Doris? Like you're so nurturing and so loving. I'm sure that that would be just wonderful for you. And so they laugh about it, you know, and it's just a moment of levity between the two of them. And my mom kind of takes it and puts it in the back of her head and doesn't really think about it until literally a week later, um, my paternal grandparents were in a car accident and my grandmother died of the injuries from that accident. So this was a huge loss for my family, for both my mother and my father. Um, My grandmother had kind of been the bedrock of the family, really protected everyone from um, the abuse and the violence of her husband, who was an alcoholic, and um, had just kind of been shelter in chaos for many, many years. So losing her suddenly, losing her in the midst of a time that's supposed to be so celebratory and so happy and full of anticipation. And then now there's just this vacuum. Like, what do you do in that? So my dad, when I ask him to recount, you know, my mom's pregnancy to me and my birth story, he just, there's large swaths of time that he can't place and doesn't remember. And it's important to highlight that he was in kind of this haze of grief because this is the backdrop of what they were dealing with when I was born. And I think it puts into context the choices that they made around my birth. So my mom supporting my dad in his grief. And my grandmother's 
joke about one for you, one for me suddenly kind of takes on this eerie meaning. And it's kind of in the back of her head like, oh, what if I really am having twins? And in fact, one day, a couple weeks later, she woke up and the first thing that she said to my dad was, I'm having twin girls. My dad goes, oh, don't say that. That's too much. And my mom's like, well, I have an appointment coming up soon. I have blood work that I need to get done at 16 weeks. So when I go in for my OB appointment, I'll ask him about it. So my mom gets this blood work done. And typically, this blood work is supposed to come back within a week's time. For her, it didn't come back until three weeks later. So this is the first piece of kind of weird missing information. Um, So my mom goes in for her appointment. And she's talking to her OB, and she's like, you know, I'm carrying much larger than I was with my first pregnancy. I have this strong intuition that I'm having twins. Do you think that that's possible? And it was an older gentleman, and um, he's looking at her blood work paper, and he's saying, you know, Wendy, like, if you were having twins, there's certain hallmarks in your blood levels that we would look for. And I don't see any of that here. Everything looks to be within normal ranges. So you know what, I'll go ahead and I'll do like a full hands-on exam of you and I'll, I'll listen and I'll see what I can find. So there wasn't a lot of technological innovation within the birth field at this time. Ultrasounds were not a common practice. Mm-hmm. It was not standard procedure. So he's doing all of this by hand. And I think some of the nuances of that have been lost over time. So I don't want to say that he did a bad job, but, you know, I think there's some subtleties that maybe he didn't pick up on. So he measures her stomach. Her numbers are still, quote unquote, within normal. um, And he listens with a stethoscope for fetal heart tones. And he can only find one. can find one up high in her belly. But she's really fully round at this point in time, like much larger than you would expect. So it surprised me that he didn't listen further. But... So he completes his exam and he says, you know, Wendy, no, you're having a singleton birth. Your measurements are within a normal range. Your blood work is on par for what it should be. And, you know, you're just a really petite woman. So there's nowhere for your baby to go but out. Your rib cage and the dimensions of your pelvis are such that, you know, babies are just going to pop. She's kind of looking at him and going, okay, well, if you're really sure, then so be it. And he said, yes, I'm really sure. Go about your everyday life. And so my mom did just that. Um, She had a really strong prenatal yoga practice at the time. And that was like, I think, her main source of self-care. So I guess around um, 28 weeks, she went to a class and um, she came out of a pose and had the sense that something shifted. She wasn't in any kind of acute pain. Um, It wasn't this like, oh, fuck, what just happened kind of moment. It was more of like, ooh. I hope that was okay. But she remembers distinctly feeling something shift. And it was both this yoga class and the interactions with her OB. She really blames herself here. She's like, I should have pushed harder with him in that appointment. I shouldn't have done that prenatal yoga class. That pose was too challenging for me. Like, I knew that something was wrong, but I just ignored all the signs. This is... Anyways, we can talk. We can get a little bit more Mm -hmm. into that Mm -hmm. later on. But I wanted to highlight it now. So she goes to this yoga class. A couple weeks go by. She's at about 30 weeks here. And she notices that she's got some bleeding, Mm. some discharge. The discharge looks like old blood. And, of course, she's immediately alarmed. Calls my dad, says, I have to go to the hospital. I'm going to have an ultrasound. Um, I'm having some bleeding. Um, my dad had to work, so he couldn't go with her to the appointment. But luckily, her sister was in town. So her sister comes with her. And uh, my mom makes sure that you know my brother is going to be taken care of during this time. Um, hmm. So they go to the appointment. The technician gets everything set up. And she's got the monitor angled away from my mom. And my mom is watching her like a hawk, just like every little microfacial expression my mom is locked into and just waiting to see what this woman says. Woman gets about two minutes in. The first two minutes, her expression's really neutral, really calm. And then something shifts. Her whole face drops. Every line in her face just seems to be etched with grief. And my mom is panicked. What's going on? Tell me, what do you see? What's happening? 
And this woman says, you know, I'm going to break protocol here. I'm supposed to call in a doctor and ask them to confirm what I'm seeing. Um, But something is wrong. Uh, Miss Butner, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're having twin girls. And my mom's first reaction is utter elation, validation. Oh, my God, I was right. My intuition has been correct this whole time. I am having twin girls. Oh, my God. Twin babies. And then the technician says, and I don't know how to tell you, but one of your girls has demised. And my mom said, demised? And the woman took her hand and looked her in the eye and said, one of your babies has died. When my mom first recounted the full story of what happened then, she told me my mind could not reconcile the fact that I had been right all along, that I knew what was right for me, that I knew what was happening in my body, and that I had been misdiagnosed. And now, because of that, I couldn't protect both of the babies living within me. And the fear of losing me in that moment was so palpable and so strong and the grief just kind of crashed over her. She said her system went into sort of like shock and she started having strong, heavy contractions right Mm. then. And thank goodness her sister was there because her sister was able to help her calm down. The technician was able to help her calm down. And then after that, she just kind of steeled herself against this really conflicting realization um she steeled herself against the grief of it she steeled herself against the truth of it and was like okay well i'm going to gather the little bit of strength that i have left tell me what do we do now so the technician said you're going to have to come back tomorrow we'll give you a higher tech ultrasound and we'll tell you we'll be able to tell you a little bit more about what's happening and what next steps will be So she goes in the next day, and it's three doctors who are giving her the ultrasound. And there was no recognition on their part that they had done anything wrong. There was no acknowledgement that she's going through an impossible situation. There was no, like, are you okay? What's going on? My mom doesn't remember anybody really expressing, like, you know, being apologetic over what had happened to her and they told her so you're surviving twins in really great shape uh she's much larger than the other twin um but she's gonna need to come out soon sooner rather than later her lungs are a little underdeveloped right now but we'll give you a week if you go into labor on your own then great. If you don't, then we're going to induce. And there's a strong likelihood that you'll need a C-section because we don't come across this scenario very often. We don't know what else could happen. We're not sure if something else is going to go wrong. So just prepare yourself for that. And my mom doesn't remember the week after that. She was on bed rest. and I think she was staying at her parents' house. But, you know, that's just so much to cope with. So... Then she goes into labor on her own a week Mm. later. Wow. Yeah. Thankfully, I'm glad that that's the way that it happened. Um, So she goes to the hospital. My dad is with her. um, And they give her Pitocin immediately to speed things along. And uh, the primary, like, I think the OB that was on call comes into the room and says, all right, Wendy, it's time for your epidural. And my mom says, I don't want an epidural. And he looks at her and he says, no, no, you need one. And he was adamant about this. And this is the only moment that she said that she saw any kind of like deep emotion from the doctors. He was like, we are just as concerned about saving your life in this scenario if something were to go wrong as we are about saving your surviving twin. So if we need to do an emergency C-section, we need you all ready to go for that. And when she was looking at him, she could feel a little bit of the panic. And she was like, oh, okay, fine. I'll have the epidural. So labor continues, she can't feel anything, Um, and then pushing time comes, and they wheel her into the OR. I don't think that they let my dad in the room with her, but there were 15 doctors and nurses in there with her. Every resident, every student, 
everyone it was all hands on deck and they gave her two birthing stools and they situated her in between both of them had a nurse on either side and a nurse behind with OB in front ready to catch and with every contraction everyone laid hands on her and was just pushing Ugh. out so they delivered Sydney first my twin um and my parents opted not to see her. My mom didn't want to hold her, didn't want to connect, couldn't, couldn't handle that. And they also opted to not have an autopsy. So I believe she was cremated that day. And I think um, it was easier for them to not know what happened rather than get the hard facts. Um, because at this point, my mom already so deeply blamed herself already felt like it was completely her fault and already felt like she had failed so deeply. I don't think that she wanted any confirmation of that, you know? And my dad, you know, he's still grappling with the loss of his own parent here. And then to find out that he's having not only one baby girl, but two baby girls. And one of them's already died. Like he was just like, whatever we need to do here, whatever you want to do, Wendy, that's okay with me. You know, there was already so much that he felt like he had to carry. I can totally understand needing to distance yourself from that a little bit. So they take my sister away immediately. And then they literally pushed me out and I was born. And then my mom got to see me for maybe a minute and I was in the NICU for 11 days. Um, my mom got to come and see me more frequently than they were quote-unquote allowed to um my grandmother was a nurse at the hospital at the time and got to pull some strings um and I think you know that's when after I was born safe and sound that's when they kind of let themselves feel the joy of welcoming a new child into the world but then even then you know I'm so little and so delicate and fragile um and in this little isolate, you know, removed from them, I can only imagine what that was like for them to experience, you know, because when you're a new parent, all you want to do is just hold that baby to you and kiss them and show them that you love them and whatnot. So to not have the opportunity that first couple of days must have been really difficult. And I'm sure it must have felt like they were just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any other important details here. Um, Do you mind if I ask a question? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Please. please. <clears throat> Sorry, let me gather myself. Mocos. <laughs> um, <clears throat> when did you, when were you first told mm. your, for, first off, when, do, when were you first told that you were a twin? And second off, when were you first told that you're sister had been lost mm. well this is an interesting question um because as young as like 18 months I would walk up to my mom and put my hand on her belly and say when Connor and I were in your belly so Connor I, being your older my brother. older brother mm -hmm. and then by age two or three I was doing that with increasing regularity Mommy, when Connor and I were in your belly. And my mom would correct me every time and say, no, no, you were in my belly. Connor was already born. And I said, no, no, someone was with me. Hmm. Someone was with me. Connor was with me. He's my brother. So I had this innate understanding that I had a sibling, but my only frame of reference was my older brother. So by the time I was four, my mom was like, Mark, my dad, I can't let her keep coming up to me and saying these things like she knows already we have to tell her and my dad's like are you crazy she's so young like how can we saddle somebody so young and so innocent with this knowledge and my mom's like she already knows don't you think we're doing her a disservice to not tell her <sighs> like let's be respectful of the amount of knowledge that she already has let's tell her so my mom sat me down and I have very vague memories of this and said, so Maureen, you, you're right. There was somebody in my belly with you. You had a sister, Sydney. She was your twin. And my mom says that I was just very quiet and like watching her very intently as she was telling me. And then when my mom said, but you know, unfortunately your sister died. 
And I kind of like looked down and was just absorbing it. And then at some moment, I kind of looked up at her and said, it's okay, I already know. And got up and like went about the rest of my tiny four-year-old day, wow. you know. So um, I've always kind of had this innate understanding that um, my experience was very different from other people's. Um, and I can remember growing up and telling people that I had an identical twin and a lot of my friends like didn't know how to react to it. Some people would be really apologetic. Some people would want to know more. Some people would like, you know, sit and process with me. But overall, there was just kind of this pervasive feeling of like, you've gone through something really different and really intense and you kind of, it behooves you to keep it to yourself. Because when people find out their reactions to you are so varied, but the way they perceive you now is different. Right. So. Which is, which is really powerful to consider. I mean, obviously in this situation, um, one of the things that touched me deeply when you first shared this mm -hmm. story with me was how, how very much your relationship with Sydney mm -hmm. continues to be a very significant piece of who you are. And, yeah. and your your journey here on this earth. And um, I know that your your spiritual practice very much has room for continuing that relationship with Sydney. Yes. So I know that that's an active part of, of your work. Um, and so I can only imagine how it felt to have something that was such a large piece of you suddenly become something to be not necessarily shameful per se, but something mm. where you weren't able to share with others because it was inappropriate or then all of a sudden you had a caretake for someone else or exactly it was so based off of other people's mm. comfort levels rather than me just owning my own experience and I mean I like it's so liberating now to be able to talk about it and to be able to like own it as this is the basis of my identity and this is honestly kind of the source of all of my intuitive abilities mm. and there's there shouldn't be any shame in that at right. all and I think um, something that really informed me feeling like it was different and something to keep separate that I've only found out recently, um, only my immediate family knew that this is what happened. My friend, my parents' friends didn't know, like extended members of our community didn't know because during her whole pregnancy, she thought she was only having one baby. Mm. And then it was only within the, the week of my birth that she found out that she was having twins. Mm. So it was it was really kept quite contained and kind of under wraps. Um, I don't know if that was like a conscientious choice on their part. Um, I'm not sure like what the finer details of that are, but I think my experience might have been quite different had they had the space or the community space to really get to process that. That's something that really deserves a lot of time to unpack it's not just like a one and done situation this is like grief washes over you like waves right and sometimes the tide's really strong and sometimes it's out to sea it needs space and time to just let whatever's coming up come up and talk about it you yeah. know in previous episodes uh we spoke with Shanisha Hoover um and we spoke a lot about isolation mm. as being a very common coping mechanism, which totally makes sense, right? Yeah. Your family was in survival mode, so only totally. shared with the people that they felt absolutely needed to know. Mm. Um, and then there's another piece, which I know from, from my family, right? A part, half of my family is mostly predominantly of German descent. Um, compartmentalization Ooh. is is very strong and very encouraged coping mechanism mm -hmm. where it's almost like a very linear way of thinking mm -hmm. where it's just like a logistical process that you have to go through. Mm -hmm. And so then once all the logistics are over, then there's this expectation that it's done. Yes, that it's finished. No need to go back. No need to look at it. Right. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot today, actually. Like that process of compartmentalization, I don't know that, like, I'm sure that you know, the German people have utilized that to their benefit. But I feel like, especially in modern American society, it's just been heightened and taken to kind of the nth degree. Like everything in our everyday life is about convenience and expediency and thinking about it as little as possible mm -hmm. so that you can move on to the next goal, so that you can 
produce and achieve and consume and all of this stuff, that like direct linear line, it kind of cuts us in half and cuts us into these tiny little bits. Absolutely. You know? um, and I, that's something that I really wish we as a society could have a collective reckoning around. You know, we're so disconnected from ourselves and we're so disconnected from one another and we're so disconnected from the processes of life and death. Like we're not intimately acquainted with any of it anymore at all. Like what? how different would it be if we could have like, you know, week-long ceremonies around somebody dying? Or like, you know, I've done some reading that's different indigenous cultures across across the globe. When a child is born, like the way I was born, they're kind of marked as being spiritually significant, as mm. a spiritual leader, you know, to share literal formative space in the womb with someone else who's crossed over to the other side that's unique that's an experience that not everybody gets to have so certain cultures revere that child and then groom them to become you know a wise elder or a shaman you know and i'm not going so far as to say that i'm a shaman, you know, I'm acutely aware that I'm an able-bodied, cisgendered, white lady, you know, from New Jersey, like, hello, hey. Um, so I'm not trying to appropriate any culture here. Um, but, you know, I, I have a distinct sense of loss around that because, like I was saying before, I really do see this as the genesis of all of my intuitive mm-hmm. abilities. And it would have been so cool if, like, my family could have honored that in some way, shape, or form. And how different would it look like um, to be able to honor all the variations of death and loss that occur and give them their own unique space and time to process? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, life would be great then. <laughs> and drawing, drawing further upon the, drawing further upon the contemplation of community as being part of our celebration, part of our mourning, mm. um, there's... I could see very much simultaneous the full spectrum, right? There is the opportunity for folks to have increased meaning, right? Hearing other people's perspectives, hearing yeah. their stories can allow us to cultivate more meaning from our own experience, eh? mm. right? Also give us hope that things will be continuing to change, right? That the experience of grief and loss and fear and anger can continue to evolve into lesser suffering, and, well, then, and, and even into strength or even into sources of inspiration. Exactly. And also knowing all of this, it takes work to be mm-hmm. to be exploring these topics, these feelings, this, this sense of, of reality. And let's be honest too, right? When we're exhausted, having, having accountability that's outside of ourselves can feel so burdensome. Mm. Right. And I think also knowing from, again, going back to to my German side of the family, um, there's a lot of concepts around privacy production, as I'm, as you yeah. mentioned, right. Value around if you're not if you're not making money, if you're not providing for your family, then basically you're not really valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So there's that cultural valuing that a lot of cultures have, I think. Yes. Um, and then, yeah. And then there's that piece of like for in your mind relationship in, in in real life, right? Being in community, I can trust that if I were to, if I were to be going through an experience, you would compassionately give me space, probably allow me to isolate for a said period of time. And then you would reach out and you'd be like, okay, brah, you know, um, what can <laughs> we do? Back. Right? Like, let's talk about it. Exactly. Let's go on the sun. You'd probably lovingly, you know, kick my ass to a certain degree because, <laughs> That's, you know, for giving me, you'd be giving support, giving me processing that I wouldn't be able to do for myself, mm. for better or for worse, right? Mm. Um, so, yeah, so as we vision, as we vision another world, as we vision another way of being, I just think it's kind of fun and also important to be sitting with that full spectrum of, Absolutely. of wonderfulness and <laughs> And hardship. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Mm. And I think I'm I'm realizing, um, you know, that after someone's had a period of time to isolate and process and then coming back into community, something that I would really like to see happen more. Um, I feel like women are inherently predisposed to absorb the blame in situations where there's a poor outcome in mm. regards to their birth. 
especially if they haven't been believed about their bodily experiences. It'd be wonderful to have community space where a woman, after she's had her own time with it, to come and to sit with other people and to hear, you are not to blame for this. Right. You are not at fault here. Like, we have this idea that um, I think death is a failure somehow, Hmm. particularly for parents. I think that gets compounded. Like, there's a lot of layers and nuances there. But I think kind of the takeaway message is if you've lost a child in any way, shape, or form, you've lost the game. Mm. You've lost the point. Right. Right? So, and I think that, you know, that internalized blame manifests so many different problems. And it's, you know, compounded by various intersections of race and class and all other sorts of things. Right. Right? Like, it's so important that we believe women and birthing people about their bodily experiences, that we take them at face value, and that if there is a poor outcome, that we're supporting them in the way that they need. Right. And there's this whole spectrum of harm that accompanies not believing women that doesn't really get talked about. It can be really benign or it can be, you know, look at the crisis around black motherhood that we have. Mm-hmm. Black mothers are three times more likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts. And there's no protective factors there. Like, right. that is insane to me. Why aren't we all engaging in dialogue around this? Like, right. this should be a front and center on the cover of every newspaper and magazine. Like, right. we got to do some work. Right. I went a little on a tangent there. No, but, but that's, like, <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh, that that's a whole, that's a whole series in itself. Yeah, it really, that, it really you know, is. That conversation. Ugh, I mean, yeah, how would, how would things shift if we were to focus our support of birthing folk from a place of empowerment and, mm. and encouraging them to develop a deeper sense of connection to self and intuition? And a lot Ooh. of those words sound kind of woo-woo, let's well, be but, honest. But wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I just experienced like a full body shiver, so let's just let that sit for a minute. Can you, can you say it again one more time, slowly? Oh, man, I'll try. How would things shift if we were, as birth workers in all of our realms, if we were to approach supporting birthing folk from a place of supporting their empowerment, and supporting their development of intuition and relationship to self. Mm. I mean, that, and I said it's woo, it can sound woo-woo because a lot of the language, I feel like, is sure. oftentimes appropriate in all sorts of ways. And thinking White about... White people with dreadlocks were looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to name names. Sorry. Um, and then, uh, and then to, to think about how... So the first thing that comes to mind when I was just saying that was how uh, I could I could hear my brother's voice about how um, that can be a really poor business model because then us as Mm -hmm. birth workers again paid paid folk let's just say paid birth workers whether we're um, doulas or midwives or nurses or OBs right Mm -hmm. where we're getting money for our services that means that we'd be encouraging people to not need us Right. Ooh. What would that mean? Right. That they won't have to pay nine ninety nine ninety nine for, <laughs> you know, <laughs> said service. Um, and yeah, how I couldn't even believe what sort like how what would that mean for for the young mother mm. who's still growing up herself to then mm. be starting to nurture a growing life out into this dry world from the womb? But like what what kind of I feel like so much can change when you have a mother or parent who is deeply in tune with themselves, Mm -hmm. knows what they're about and can navigate the world with confidence. Like what a beautiful model you're giving to your child then. Like, honestly, I would be completely okay with birth workers not being needed anymore. Like, right. if that's, if we can get to that point in time, like, we have done our work. Right. We've done what we really needed to do. Because there's still so much about the way in which we give birth that needs to change. And the stories and narratives that we have around it have to change. And if you can change your story, you can change your life. And then exactly. change the planet. Exactly. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> And in, in part, and in, in, in sitting, so in engaging this sort of uh, processes, um, 
that would mean that whatever the outcome, whether it be a planned C-section, an emergency C-section, mm. whether it be the loss mm. of a life, mm. there would be a sense of deeper knowing that we did all that we could and then that was enough. And also recognizing, however you want to frame this next part, whether you believe in creator, God, the universe, something just recognizing that there's something bigger than ourselves and to be humble enough to know that we can't control everything. I love that. It's a hard lesson to learn. Yes. I yes. can speak from experience. It's still, it's, it's not a linear process. Not like, oh, I finally feel it. Box checked. Not going to struggle anymore. It's a mm. cyclical process. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to be somehow grounded within ourselves as best we can so that no, so that when something happens, knowing that it's not all about us. No. That there's something bigger going on. Something creatively intelligent that's got everybody's best interests at heart. And it behooves us to just surrender. To receive, into yeah. That. Yeah. Mm. So if you, if you don't mind, if, unless sure. there's something else that you wanted to, to weave in there. Uh, I'm really... We've, we've done a lot of weaving right now. Okay, so I know, right? You take the reins, my lady. So, um, and you didn't... We didn't really touch upon this per se in your intro, but I'm mm. sure um, we'll we'll share more in show notes. But a lot of your work is in multiple realms, supporting people in multiple realms, yes, uh, and particularly women. And yes. um, the what I do know of you is I actually just found out recently that you're not even 30 yet. No, which is so <laughs> weird. I feel like you're. <laughs> You look, you, know, you look young and fabulous. And at the same time, I feel like you're like way older than me because you seem to have your shit so much together. Um, <laughs> it's just the old soul peeking out. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> um, so my question to you is, having had this sort of origin story, how did that shape your work in this world, whether it be this your studies or whether it be the particular space that you hold for folks or even the particular way you engage in birth work? Mm. Well, um, <laughs> I know it's a big question. <laughs> it, it, it is a big question, but I'm immediately kind of struck with like it provided the container for me to just fill, mm. right? Like it shaped me completely. Um, having this be my origin story, like. It, it informs all of my work now, in a sense. Um, I feel like I'm uniquely predisposed to birth work because of this, particularly bereavement and loss. Mm. Um, I'm kind of uniquely predisposed to being able to understand something about somebody without any real effort um, or, you know, digging. Hold on, there's, like, so much here. It's, like, hard to, you know. It's all good. I asked... I meant to ask only one of those bullet point <laughs> questions and the rest just kept on coming out. <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess the a good way for me to like explain it, um, for a long time um, in my life, I didn't have a strong sense of who I was. Like really felt very different, felt very set apart from other people, knew that I was queer, couldn't come to terms with that, um, was living in, you know, the East Coast. And that environment is just so fast paced and just very like all the things that we were talking about before, linear, checking off the boxes, really capitalistic, really like driven. Um, and it just it wasn't me. Um but I always knew that I was drawn towards other people and working with other people and helping others and being of service. Like that's really core to me as well. Um, and I, you know, I, there would be times where I just know something about somebody after only meeting them for like a couple minutes. And I, I didn't trust that for a really long time. These natural intuitive powers, this like really deep knowing with almost no outside information. I was really wary of that. And I think some of like my Christian upbringing kind of informed some of my like, what's the word? Um, Hesitation to trust. Exactly. Yeah. And feeling like there's something wrong with that ability. Um, So it wasn't until um, towards the end of my college career and then when I started pursuing social work that I really started to feel things sort of click. And then it, 
honestly, it was when I was first sitting in my first doula class that I really realized like, oh, there was a bigger purpose to this being my story. Like there's a whole, there's a reason why I went through so many years of feeling separate and different. Like there's a reason why I experienced loss at such a young age. It was to prepare me for this work of helping to bring new life into the world and helping to rewrite the narratives around how we do that. Mm. And that's like I was saying before, if you can change your story, you can change your life. Like everything just kind of came together in this first doula class that I took. And I was just sort of like overwhelmed by the amount of energy and information that I was receiving in that moment. And I think that's when I really started to claim like, I'm an intuitive witch. (laughs) I read tarot for folks. I know what's going on really easily with other people. And like birth work is kind of the nexus of all of my skills. It's an opportunity to create social justice. It's an opportunity for me to be in service of other people. And it's also an opportunity for me to help people get to know themselves so much more intimately than maybe they might not have been able to do otherwise. And then also within the context of like bereavement and loss, because I feel like people get so solution oriented around grief and loss. Um, It's rare to just have somebody show up and just hold space for you and just give you a container to fill however you so choose. And I, I do that without even thinking Hmm. almost like that's just my default setting. Like sometimes I have to really close myself off to that so that I can actually be a functional person and like do other things. But I'm really excited for the opportunity to be able to give people a safe space and to be able to hold them and um, yeah, just allow whatever's happening to happen. Does that answer your question? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And unfortunately, I just for the first time glanced up and realized that it's time to bring our conversation to a close. No. I know. I feel like there's so many more questions and yeah. realms that, that we've touched upon and we can go deeper into. Oh, for sure. Um, but in closing, I always love to ask uh, guests to offer, if there's any words of advice, um, mm. words of wisdom, uh, nuggets that, you know, nuggets of meaning that perhaps you haven't shared yet. Mm. Um, that you'd like to offer before we close. Now's the time. <laughs> mm. Nuggets of meaning, wisdom, and insight. I think we've touched on this quite a bit throughout the episode, but basically the ways of this world really don't offer us much peace. And I would really encourage anybody listening to this podcast to get outside and sit wherever you feel comfortable, wherever you have access to, and try to make that kind of a daily practice. I think the more that we all collectively can connect to the earth as our source, the better off we'll be. And especially for anyone who's expecting to bring new life into the world, I think that's a really powerful practice and really going to help empower you to make choices Um, that are informed and clear so find peace in the earth my friends i know that sounds so crunchy granola and like woo 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 but it's true but it's so true (laughs) (laughs) maureen thank you for your vulnerability for your wisdom uh for your beautiful storytelling skills it was such an honor and pleasure to have you here today thank you thank you so much harry thank you it's truly truly a privilege there are so many of us out here who feel the world with thin skin and heavy hearts who get called crazy because we're too full of fire and pain who know that other worlds exist and aren't comfortable in this version of reality. We've been busting up out of sidewalks and blooming all kind of misfit flowers for as long as people have been walking on this earth. So many of us have access to secret layers of consciousness. You could think of us like dandelion roots that gather minerals from hidden layers of the soil that other plants don't reach. 
If we're lucky, we share them with everyone on the surface because we feel things stronger than other people around us. A lot of us have visions about how things could be different, why they need to be different, and it's painful to keep them silent. Sometimes we get called sick and sometimes we get called sacred. But no matter how they name us, we are a vital part of making this planet whole. It's time we connect our underground roots and tell our buried stories, grow up strong and scatter our visions all over the patches of scarred and damaged soil in a society that is so desperately in need of change. This poem is called Dandelion Roots and can be found in Mindful Occupations booklet called Rising Up Without Burning Out. The music you heard on today's show is X Factor by Lauren Hill. Deep gratitude to Maureen Butner for being our guest. Find guest bios and contact info in show notes. Check out Episode 7, Lost in Grief Series, Part 3, where we connect with birth worker Elena Arora to explore more specifically how to approach loss and grief in our birth work. And last but not least, follow me on Instagram at birthbruja to continue the conversation around loss and grief in and outside of birth work.